I'm Jason Mitchell, Head of Responsible Investment Research at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying well. As I talked about a few episodes ago, AI is one of the big themes we explore this year. And the impact of AI on labor markets is perhaps one of the most profound issues. It's generally acknowledged that AI is going to be a powerful engine of productivity and growth. But the question is, how large will these gains be and what are the side effects? Because AI is sure to be a disruptive force. Indeed, there are economic parallels throughout history, from the 19th century Luddites and the agricultural mechanization of the 1930s to attempts to apply a tax on automation itself there is a long-running narrative of fear and anxiety around the idea of technological unemployment. But historical examples around automation have always been sector or region-specific. And by contrast, AI will produce much larger economy-wide effects, which bring implications for inequality, both wage inequality and the divide between the global south and global north, not to mention market structure and regulation. In short, AI may well shift the balance of power between labor and capital. It's why I'm excited to be speaking with Professor Anton Korneck on this subject. Anton is one of the foremost economists examining the development and impacts of AI on labor markets. We talk about how to think through the economic and specifically labor productivity implications of generative AI what AI could potentially mean for the last 40 years of wage polarization, and why it's vital we rethink traditional forms of learning, given the impact that AI could have on education. Anton Korneck is a professor in the Department of Economics at the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia, as well as a David M. Rubenstein Fellow at the Brookings Institution. His current research and teaching analyze the implications of artificial intelligence for business, for the economy, and for the future of society. He's a research associate at the National Bureau of Research, at the Center for Economic Policy Research, and at the Oxford Center for the Governance of AI. He's also editor of the Oxford Handbook of AI Governance. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Anton Kornack. It's great to have you here, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Jason. I very much look forward to this conversation on what I think is one of the most important topics to talk about these days. I can't agree with you more. And I've been prepping and really looking forward to this conversation for a while. So let's start with some level setting. I've asked this question in an earlier podcast with Mike Kolo, who's more of an AI generalist, but it feels particularly relevant (laughs) for you as an economist who studies the productivity effects of AI. So the question is to start out, does generative AI represent a new age of enlightenment or a new industrial revolution? Mm, That is a good question. I would say it's not so much a new industrial revolution as a new cognitive revolution. So if you look at the industrial revolution, what it was about was the automation of physical tasks of uh, essentially building machines to change the world around us, to build things, to produce things in factories and so on. 
What advances in AI, and in particular, the most recent advances in generative AI are doing, is they are instead performing cognitive tasks. They are not physical machines, but machines of mind. So I would call it a new cognitive revolution. And yeah, as to the question of whether they will lead to a new age of enlightenment, I think that's very much up to us humans. I think AI carries both so much potential and also so many dangers of abuse. And I think we have to use our enlightenment to use AI in ways that can deepen enlightenment. Historically speaking, there's a clear legacy of fear around technological disruption with regard to labor markets. And I'll be honest, it's something I'm fascinated about, this aspect of economic history. So let me cite a few examples for context. In 1927, the U.S. Secretary of Labor first voiced concerns about automation and job loss. In 1930, John Maynard Keynes, who we all know about, coined the term, quote, technological unemployment, end quote. In 1940, the fear of robots and automation was strong enough that Senator John O'Mahony proposed a tax on automation. In 1964, a U.S. government commission convened to examine the dangers of automation and job loss. And in the 1980s, the Nobel laureate Vasily Lowenthal predicted mass unemployment owing to automation. So, Given the estimates out there, and I'm sure you're aware of it, I'm thinking about the Alundu paper, which cites that almost 50% of the workforce could eventually see AI perform half or more of their job tasks. I guess my question is, how do you think about generative AI, either as a job killer or simply a productivity boost against these historical anxieties? Yeah, so it's definitely all of these it's going to be a job killer in certain circumstances. It's definitely going to be a productivity boost. And I think the fears that you are describing, and we can go all the way back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution when the Luddite movement started, the fears, they are justified, but at the same time, it's not all doom and gloom. So let me walk through it uh, in a couple of steps. I think the first thing we need to realize is that whenever you have a technological revolution, there are some losers and those are hit hard. And then society at large broadly gains from the greater productivity. So if you are a worker who is fired because of a new innovation, because of some automation project, that's not a lot of consolation, but society at large benefits from the productivity gains that we obtain from more and more automation. The second thing I want to say is that not all automation and not all technological advance is the same. So there are some innovations that tend to complement human workers a little bit more and others that tend to substitute for human workers, to just take away their job without leading to tremendous productivity gains. And as a society at large, we are much better off from the innovations that complement workers. But now, as my last point on this question, let me forward a little bit further into the future. 
And let me say that I think in principle, it may be possible for AI to automate everything that we humans are doing at work. So that would require what people call artificial general intelligence. And that would be a game changer. That would completely change these regularities that we have known from the past and from the Industrial Revolution. So if we do really achieve artificial general intelligence, then I think all labor will be redundant. And the only reason for us to continue to work is because we'll enjoy it. But for productive purposes, machines could do it just as well. And machines would probably be a fraction of the cost of humans at all these work tasks. So, I mean, not to jump ahead, because I do want to put a pin on AGI or artificial general intelligence. But I mean, do you think we ultimately realize that vision of Keynes in terms of a 15-hour working week and, you know, the anxiety he had about what people will do with all their leisure time outside of work? Yeah, how about this zero-hour work week under <laughs> AGI? <laughs> but you're right, let's not jump ahead too far. So one of the interesting things about Keynes's prediction in 1930s, he was absolutely right about the pace of productivity gains, but he was just wrong about how society has decided to spend those gains. So Keynes thought that, well, if we are also productive, people will choose to work less and will choose to enjoy more leisure time. But instead, people are in some areas working even harder now than they did in the 1930s. They're just spending it all on more consumption. And I think one of the reasons is that humans also have this very competitive streak. They want to out-earn others. They want to be more successful at their jobs than others. And that makes them work hard. That makes them earn more money, even though ultimately it's a rat race. And perhaps we would all be much happier if we just worked 15 hours a week. And I guess we are already at the stage where in advanced countries where we do have significant wealth, we could afford to do that. It's interesting. You immediately sort of remind me of that quote, comparison is the thief of joy. Let's talk about the impact of generative AI from a macroeconomic perspective, given the high expectations out there. For example, I'm thinking about the McKinsey estimates where generative AI could add between $2.6 trillion and $4.4 trillion in value to the global economy. In your Brookings report, Machines of Mind, the case for an AI-powered productivity boom, which I want to spend a lot of time on in this podcast, you propose scenarios of 10 to 20% productivity gains for cognitive workers based on the current and the next generation of models. Basically, that's 2x the productivity growth gains over the next 10 years that we've seen over the last two decades. So yeah. can you talk about the underlying assumptions of that? Yeah. So I should emphasize, I could imagine those gains that you just described, even if we have no further advances in AI, even if we just deploy the models that we currently have throughout the economy. And the reason is the following, roughly two thirds of the workforce are engaged in what we broadly call cognitive work, white collar work. And there are some early estimates 
that for the average cognitive worker, these new large language models can deliver productivity gains between 10 and 20%. And if you multiply the two-thirds of the economy getting 10 or 20% more productive, that automatically gives you already a significant productivity gain. Now, what's important is that cognitive workers are also the ones who are engaged in research and development and who are developing new innovations. So if all the innovators are suddenly 10 or 20% more productive, you can also expect that they are going to come up with new innovations even faster and drive productivity growth even further through that mechanism. And so based on these two channels, cognitive workers being more productive on the one hand and innovators leading to faster innovations, we expect that productivity gains in the next two decades is going to be twice as fast than what we had in the past two decades. And that does not even rely yet on future generations of AI systems that may be even more amazing. So if you add in, let's say, the next iteration of AI systems of large language models or whatever your favorite type of systems in your sector is, I could well imagine that we will outpace those estimates and that growth will really take off in the next decade or two. It seems so, particularly with sort of the estimates of these models chronic doubling every six months. But I'm curious about what that means for AGI or artificial general intelligence. What's its potential and its productivity growth curve? And maybe frame or do some scene setting around the scenario since there's clearly some disagreement in opinions on this. Yeah, I think you're right. Some scene setting is really important when it comes to the topic of AGI. And I should add, I'm an economist. Uh, you know, I'm not an AI expert directly, but I listen to the world's leading AI experts. And even there, there is a lot of disagreement. Two of the people call them godfathers of AI predict that artificial general intelligence may happen very soon. Jeff Hinton is on record of saying that it may materialize within five years or 20 years or anything in between. And then a third one, Jan Lecon, says that it's ridiculous to worry about artificial general intelligence. So I think the range of potential scenarios is really broad. And the best thing that we can do is something that is very dear to economists, which is a portfolio approach. I think we all need to be prepared for a range of different scenarios. And one of them is that AGI may happen very soon, very quickly, possibly even within five years. And another one is that it may take a lot longer and that we'll have generative AI systems that still haven't reached that level within, let's say, three decades. And I think all of these scenarios are plausible and we should be at some level prepared for them, in particular in the sense that we shouldn't be completely surprised if they suddenly materialize. So now you asked about the productivity effects of AGI, and in some sense, they would be absolutely tremendous. So artificial general intelligence means that machines can perform literally everything 
that humans can perform on the cognitive side. I think the advances in robotics and so on that are, are going on right now are so fast that the physical side of automation is not that far behind. So it turns out if you hook up these large language models, for example, with robots, they are suddenly a lot more capable than they were before. And that's why we're seeing rapid advances in robotics. What it all implies for productivity is that we could produce a lot more for a lot less. And I guess the big downside is if everything can be produced so cheaply and without human labor input, what are we humans going to live off? And that's going to present a really huge distributive challenge to our society. So right now we live in a world where the vast majority of us derives their income from labor. We do a job, get paid for it. We work as entrepreneurs and we obtain income from that. But once our labor isn't particularly valuable anymore because AGI is there, we are going to have to find a new way of distributing this fantastic amount of wealth that AI could potentially produce. Or otherwise, if we don't, we would have mass starvation and instability and tremendous misery. And that would be such a shame because uh, there's so much opportunity, so much potential from AI. And even if we just distributed a small fraction of the potential gains, we could all be much better off. It's such an interesting point. And I'm not trying to sort of go into a more abstract space, but I think these distribution curves are really important. If you could kind of describe the two examples that I think you've historically talked about. I guess what I mean is, do we increasingly retreat deeper into the long tail distribution of infinite tasks towards more complexity as, as humans? Or is there kind of a ceiling, you know, a finite maximum complexity of tasks that the human brain can perform, which AGI ultimately replicates, right? It feels like a very stark kind of binary outcome that we're sort of facing. Yeah, that's indeed the million or maybe I should say trillion dollar question. So to, to rephrase the question, when we think about automation, in the past, we have always automated some things, and then we humans have retreated into the remaining tasks that have not yet been automated. And one of the main challenges for why we couldn't automate everything in the past is because our machines were just too dumb. Now we are suddenly at the stage where our machines are a lot smarter and where they're coming closer and closer to what we humans can do. But so far, they still can't do everything. And so this million or trillion dollar question is, will machines eventually be able to perform all those cognitive tasks that we humans can perform? Or will there always be a tail left for us humans that only we can perform? And if that's the case, then it means there's always going to be scope for human work. There's always uh, going to be value in the work that we humans will do. Because if you automate everything else, then the unautomated bit just becomes more and more and more valuable. That's the lesson of the Industrial Revolution. If you automate some things and make them really cheap, then the remaining tasks that we still need to create the output that we want to create becomes more and more valuable. 
So again, in that scenario where we humans can always retreat into new work tasks, we will all be better off in the end. But in the other scenario where the machines can do everything, we will be toasted some level. Our labor will no longer have a lot of value because machines would be able to do it much more cheaply. Can we talk about these things in the context of labor markets and how these scenarios reverberate across mm -hmm. labor markets? What are the potential disruptions, especially given labor is the main economic determinant for how we distribute income, frankly? What are the historical parallels that we can draw upon, which have seen supernormal productivity gains over small periods and subsequent labor market disruptions? I think you've talked about the agricultural mechanization of the 1920s and 30s, for instance. Yeah, that was indeed a period in which we saw very rapid disruption of jobs. And the jobs that were disrupted at the time were those of small plot farmers who were essentially replaced by tractors. And so in the past, we have always seen these, I want to say, pockets of automation. For example, the farming sector being disrupted. Or if you go back to the 1980s, 1990s, a lot of industrial production was automated and workers in those sectors have lost out. And in both of these episodes, we could see that the affected workers really suffered. So if you were a farmer who lost their farm during the Great Depression, that was certainly no fun. And it also wasn't fun if you lost your factory job in the American Rust Belt in the 1980s. So workers who were affected by that type of technological disruption, they really experienced lasting income losses. And if you want lasting scars in the labor market. Now, all those examples always affected only limited parts of the economy, though. And so the danger of AGI is that it may affect all human labor. And that means the farmer who loses their job or the factory worker who loses their job could no longer switch to something new and retrain and move to a different area of the country where there may be more work because AGI would be everywhere and it could do things more cheaply and more effectively anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. So it would really be without a precedent. And I think that's what makes it so hard both to imagine and at some level also for a lot of people to take seriously. So I myself sometimes struggle, should I really believe that this is possible? And if you look at historical precedent, then we suggest, no, it's impossible. We've never seen this type of complete disruption of the labor market. But then again, if you listen to leading AI experts and you just look at the ongoing trend of automation and you think about the limited cognitive capacity of our brains, our brains are amazing, but they are still limited. Sometimes I feel like it's inescapable that at some point machines might be able to perform all that which our brain can do. And then from that perspective, it seems it's just a question of time. It's easy to get a little bit depressed on this, but to draw on David Ricardo, what is the human comparative advantage in an AI context? You've talked about the need to shift from content generation to content discrimination. But doesn't that eventually get whittled away with better trained models in the future? 
Yeah, I think both of that is absolutely right. So right now, we are at the stage where generative AI can produce a lot. And if you as a human can harness that and edit it a little bit, add your own colors to it, that can make you a lot more productive. And that means you have leveraged your comparative advantage. But you're right, as these systems become better and better, it's not clear that that will remain our comparative advantage. And in some ways, if machines can do everything far cheaper than us, then comparative advantage isn't really a very useful concept anymore because it would just not be worth for us humans to engage in those activities that machines can conduct at a fraction of the cost that it would take us to do it. That's got huge implications. Robert Solow, the economist, observed the Solow paradox, as I'm sure you know, the productivity paradox, saying that, quote, you can see the computer age everywhere, but in the productivity statistics. And, and frankly, I mean, he said that in, I think, the late 80s, I think 1989, pre the real kind of ramp up in the age of the internet. So my question to you is, will we see AI in the productivity statistics over the next five years? And as an add-on, how much of the generative AI productivity question is frankly a measurement problem that the standard productivity statistics don't really reflect it discreetly. And we don't know what to look for or where to look for. At what point do we start identifying these productivity gains at a macro level? Yeah, I do think that we will see the impact of AI on productivity within the next five years. I should say there's always a little bit of a lag because it takes organizations, corporations, individuals time to adopt these new technologies. But with generative AI, I think that time lag is actually going to be shorter because we can already all use it. We just need to use the same computers that we already have. We don't need to invest in new hardware. We just need to adapt our organizational processes. And that is, I think, what is the main challenge right now and the main reason why we don't see an immediate productivity impact, because organizations still need to essentially wrap their heads around how do we best use and deploy these tools. I think there is also something to what you said, that we won't necessarily measure all of it right away. And that's because of the peculiar reason that we measure output and productivity. For a lot of the cognitive workforce, output is actually not measured by what they produce, but by how much they are paid. So for example, if you look at me as a professor, the way that I show up in productivity statistics is they measure my salary. They don't measure whether I wrote more papers or fewer papers in a given year. And if my salary goes up, then that shows up as an increase in output in the statistics. And a lot of the output of generative AI is of a cognitive nature, of a digital nature that makes it very hard to measure. So I think we will see productivity gains. Some of them will be in the statistics. Some of them will be kind of hidden from official statistics, but we will be able to feel them. And that means they will still make us better off. How do you think about AI's inequality problem? And I accept that inequality feels like a loaded term. I feel like we kind of need to dimensionalize it in a couple different ways. 
the last several decades has been characterized by wage polarization, specifically the rise in the skill premium. I'm referring to John Otter's work, which I know that you're very familiar with. In other words, wages for high-skilled workers have gone up, while wages for less-skilled workers have stagnated. And so how does this wage dynamic play out with generative AI? Do the greater productivity gains of generative AI benefit cognitive workers, or do they help lift up less skilled workers on the lower end of the wage distribution? So there are a couple of really interesting early results that suggest that lesser skilled workers, less experienced workers, may actually benefit more from generative AI than more highly skilled workers. Now, I'm a little bit concerned about these results because an alternative interpretation is that generative AI is essentially devaluing the value of skill, the value of experience, because the computer can just substitute for that. Although it is an encouraging headline to see that generative AI reverses this trend in the skill premium and helps lesser skilled workers more, if the sole reason is because it reduces the value of the more highly skilled, then that's not particularly good news. <laughs> that's that's an interesting take on it. Uh, I, I had not thought about that. I get you know, and and it kind of brings to mind two issues, right? I mean, there's this sort of this reversal in that polarization effect that we've seen over the last couple of decades, but there's also this larger question about the balance of power between capital and labor, and how that plays out with the advent of AGI. That's right. I think we we would actually be in urgent need of reversing that trend that we have seen in the past few decades. All the signs point towards generative AI as a tool that's essentially powered by a lot of capital, shifting the balance further away from labor. But I think there is also some hope, which is that if these generative AI tools can do so many things and they can do it really cheaply, then hopefully we will find a way of distributing some of those gains. And hopefully we will be able to make sure that even those workers who will over time become redundant will not be worse off, but will in the end, once they have, I shouldn't say they, I should say we, right? Because it would affect you and me as well. Once we have accepted our fate, that we would actually be happier and that we would follow Keynes's suggestion to work less and live more and enjoy leisure. Hmm. Sort of expand this kind of question around inequality. What do you think AI represents in terms of that global north and global south divide? I mean, there, there's already been some troubling signs that generative AI is kind of creating an underclass, a subaltern of mechanical Turk-like crowd workers, of annotators and taskers who label data used to train these LLMs, these large language models. In some ways, it feels like AI regulation in this sense is essentially about labor regulation. But how, how do you think about these marginal workers and how they figure in to this kind of question around inequality? My background is sort of political economy. So I'm kind of drawn into this kind of question of, of dependency theory, right? I mean, do we sort of see kind of a, a new age of dependency theory where sort of the global South is under an 
generative AI or an AGI model kind of captured in a constant state of underdevelopment by the global north? I've been wondering about that myself. And honestly, I can't quite make up my mind about it. I think there are forces in both directions. So if it is true that generative AI devalues skilled work, first of all, then that would suggest that the global south is actually not losing as much as the north. And it would suggest that there's going to be some degree of nivelation between workers in the global north and global south, at least. And I say between workers because, of course, capital would be the other component. That other component is what gives me much more pause. So if the capital that develops all these systems is all owned by the global north, then that would, of course, carry the potential to increase inequality quite a bit. Putting the two together, I'm not sure whether I'm more worried about the global north or the global south. I think both are in for quite some disruption. I don't think the global south will necessarily be the loser out of this. Could they be the winner out of this? I mean, this idea of this reversal of polarization, the fact that kind of lesser skilled workers see a catch up, right? Kind of a rising tide relative to higher skilled workers. Yeah. So if we wanted to make the case for that, we could say, well, all the workers in the global south can now access the same highly capable tools that workers in the global north have. They can access the educational opportunities afforded by these tools. Uh, they can access the productivity benefits. And maybe that actually makes them better off compared to where they have been. And certainly it won't hurt them as much as the workers in the global north. But as we emphasized before, so much depends on how the gains that the capital underlying the generative AI will accrue will be distributed. That's really the crux of the matter. If we find a way of distributing some of the gains and just needs to be a sliver in an equitable way, then everybody could be better off. If we don't find that way, it would be a really depressing outcome. It's so interesting. I wanted to switch lanes a little bit. You've written about the AI alignment problem in your paper, aligned with whom? Direct and social goals for AI systems. As you write, more robust implementation addresses direct alignment problems. But how do we address social alignment problems as AI systems increasingly impose externalities on society and the general interest? I guess I'm trying to open this up to this kind of externality problem that you increasingly touch on. How, how do you see governance and norms evolving given the absence of a global AI regulatory framework? Yeah, ultimately, the question of distribution that we have been discussing is part of a larger question of how do we align AI with society at large. And the alignment problem, as it is usually discussed among machine learning researchers, focuses more on how do I get AI to do X and not unintentionally do Y. And doing Y can be things like how do I get AI to perform as a worker and not unintentionally kill humanity and things like that. Uh, 
that, that's what the uh, research community in this area focuses on. But I think another really important uh, question, and that's what I call the social alignment problem, is how do we make sure these AI systems don't only do what we tell them to do in a really narrow technical sense, but also that they don't wreak havoc with the fabric of society. How do we govern them? How do we integrate them into the governance systems that we have? How do we make sure they don't wreak havoc with our system of income distribution? That was the question we have just been discussing. And it is uh, one part of this larger question uh, without compensating the losers. And it does uh, very much seem like we will need a global solution to this problem. On my optimistic days, I can see two potential solutions that may be able to get us there. Maybe it will be a combination of the two. One of them is that some of the labs, some of the AI companies working on artificial general intelligence are quite aware of the responsibilities that they are incurring when they develop AGI. And they are thinking about things like how will we solve the distributive challenge if a lot of workers, or maybe even all workers, go unemployed. And if they manage to develop AGI systems, then I have some hope that they'll also manage to solve this distributive problem and set up a scheme that allows for the distribution of some small share of the benefits of AGI. So it's a small share, but potentially still large enough to make sure that all the workers who are displaced are not worse off, but are in fact better off. The second potential solution that I envision on my optimistic days is that critical mass of governments around the world will be able to get together and form a global organization that oversees the most advanced AI systems and makes sure that some of the benefits of these systems are distributed to humanity at large so that all humans who are alive will benefit from the tremendous opportunities and the tremendous economic growth that these systems may produce. Obviously, there's no guarantee that we get there. And I also have less optimistic days on which I feel quite gloomy about the challenge that we're facing. I want to push you on this a little bit more. Are we essentially setting ourselves up for a Facebook file scenario? But one I worry that is compounded by the multitude of AI systems and the externalities that they produce. So it would be a Facebook files on absolute steroids. I think the Facebook files were kind of the tip of an iceberg of all the damages and dangers and externalities that social media has imposed on humanity. But something like an advanced form of generative AI or artificial general intelligence could impose dangers and externalities that are just orders of magnitudes larger. As we saw from this letter from the Center for AI Safety that was signed by hundreds of experts in the space of AI, and I should say I have also signed the letter myself, uh, there is a 
growing number of people who are really concerned about the existential risks emanating from such systems as well. So yes, uh, we very much have to worry about something like the Facebook files where we develop systems that intentionally or unintentionally wreak massive amounts of havoc, but the amount of havoc would just be orders of magnitude greater. What's your view on the environmental negative externalities of AI? It's been a little bit frustrating. I mean, there there have been some articles, but it's been hard given the lack of transparency to kind of understand, I guess, the true impact that it could have. Yeah, so my understanding is right now that environmental impact actually isn't all that large yet. So at the moment, the total amount of power, for example, that's drawn by server farms, let's say in the US, is less than 2% of our total power consumption. And if you compare it with something like air travel or so, it almost pales in comparison. I think it is fair to be concerned that if we continue doubling the amount of compute that we put into our cutting-edge systems, that in a couple of years, we may have significantly larger power requirements for AI. And then at that point, we probably should start to worry quite seriously about the environmental impacts of that. I hope, that's again the optimist in me now, I hope that the AI is going to be able to help us address these problems a little bit better too. How do you see the market structure evolving? feels like we're drifting a little bit towards regulation, et cetera. But do frontier models like OpenAI's ChatGPT4 and Google DeepMind's Palm 2 essentially become natural monopolies that ultimately attract antitrust attention? Yeah, this is a question that has been very much on my mind in recent months. I'm just about to come out with a comprehensive paper on this question. And uh, what my co-author and I are arguing is that uh, this landscape of cutting-edge foundation models, uh, which is the set of models to which generative AI models belong, is very much a natural monopoly kind of landscape. So these systems, they require massive amounts of investment to produce, but then once you have them, you can actually operate them relatively cheaply. And that is kind of like, uh, for example, utility networks. Our utility networks have a similar way of operating. It's massively expensive to build them, but then they are relatively cheap to run. And what you see in markets where you have that phenomenon is that there is a very strong force towards concentration, because if you are the first one who develops one of those systems, or let's say if you're one of the first two or three, because there's always a little bit of scope for differentiation, then you can just charge sufficiently low prices to keep other entrants out of the market. And if you have such a natural monopoly structure, there are kind of two angles that regulators really need to look out for. The first angle is that monopolies tend to charge excessive prices and to extract rents from the rest of society. So we are not seeing this right now when it comes to large language models uh, or generative AI more broadly. But we do have to keep an eye out 
for monopolistic behavior in that sector. And the second angle that regulators really need to pay attention to is that if there is no competition, a lot of the other benefits of competition are mitigated. So normally competition is what ensures that the market produces what we want. If you are, let's say, a car company that produces cars that nobody wants, then you're going to go bankrupt. Competition is a very strong force that steers producers towards fulfilling consumers' wishes. If you are in a natural monopoly position, on the other hand, then that competitive force is blunted. That means the companies who are operating these monopolies, they have very little incentive to actually listen to the consumer, very little incentive to do things like watching out for consumers' privacy, watching out for information security, watching out to refrain from bias, discrimination, harmful statements, because the competitive forces of the market are just not pushing them that way. And that means that there is a role for regulators to step in to ensure that there are at least no egregious violations of what consumers would want them to do. So having these natural monopolies really makes it important that regulators pay careful attention to that sector. That's interesting. What role do you see open source LLMs currently being developed play in the near and medium term? I mean, they're not really competitive with commercial offerings, despite what some people might say. And it's it's doubtful that gap will close in the future. I guess my point is the future will look very different in a world where open source models are standard versus a world where the only viable tools are offered commercially and exist as natural monopolies. I think that's right. And I should say that I have very mixed feelings towards open source models in this space. So as an economist, generally, I'm very much in favor of open source because, as you say, uh, it carries the potential of making these models accessible to anyone, essentially at cost, which is very, very low. And the economics of generative AI would look very different if you have one or two big monopolists charging consumers for their use versus if you have equally capable open source models that can do the same thing and that essentially give us access to amazing capabilities at close to zero costs. So in that economic sense, I'm a big fan of open source. However, there is another aspect of these, I want to call them frontier AI systems, that gives me a little bit of pause. And that is that as these systems become more and more capable, the risk of abuse and the risk of them doing unintended things, the risks of accidents, are also rising. I think if we open source the most advanced and most capable systems in like one or two generations from now that may really impose significant safety risks. And that's why I would be very cautious about that. Right now, my inclination would be to say that we want to really impose a significant level of regulation on these types of models. And doing that with open source would be very difficult. 
As an educator, how do you see generative AI impacting university? It seems clear that educators need to, I guess, rethink what they want to teach kids given the strengths of AI. I guess I'm, I'm thinking back to your paper, language models and cognitive automation for economic research. Obviously, it's sort of geared towards uh, economists and, and, and their research. But what does it reveal about the areas of disruption for cognitive researchers? What are the recommendations about the capabilities to focus on? Personally, I'd assume that Gen AI would be primarily focused on mundane tasks. So for me, it was quite interesting that it can be so powerful at the ideation level. Yeah, working on this paper has been really an eye-opening experience to me. So I wrote the first version in February 2023. That was when we only had GPT 3.5. Back then, the AI system that we all had access to, ChatGPT or GPT 3.5 itself, could do more than I expected. I was actually fairly impressed and I thought, hmm, I really have to make an effort to kind of incorporate these tools into my workflows because I can see that they are tremendously effective and they, they really allow me to be more productive. Now, a month ago, I revised the paper to incorporate all the advances that had occurred between February and July 2023. And I was honestly blown away. So first of all, we all are aware that GPT-4 is significantly more powerful than GPT-3.5, but it can really do lots of tasks that I, as an economic researcher, uh, would engage in on a daily basis. And as you emphasized, it has become really useful at brainstorming for me. It has become really useful at giving me feedback, offering me alternative perspectives, and so on. It's also really great at writing computer code. And one of the tools that ChatGPT is offering is Code Interpreter, which allows the language model to both write the code and execute it to do something that you want it to do. So for example, for me as an economist that is developing charts, running data analysis, and so on and so forth. And it is already really capable at that. So I think it saves economic researchers, but I would, I should really say cognitive workers at large. It saves us a tremendous amount of time if we deploy these systems strategically for tasks at which they're good at. Now, what does this all imply for university education? I think that's a question that so many schools around the country, around the world, are really struggling with these days. And I want to answer it in two parts. And I should say I don't really have deep answers to it. But the first way of thinking about it is what should students learn given the tools that we currently have available? There, my answer would be definitely to learn to use these tools as best as they can and use them to be more productive in the work that they're doing. Because when they graduate, they will have those tools at their disposals in their jobs, and it's going to make them better at their jobs. So I think educators who say, oh, we should forbid these tools and we should employ detectors that make sure that nobody ever uses a word generated by chat GPT, they're missing the boat. We absolutely want to prepare students to use those tools 
And we want them to learn how to use them as effectively and as productively as possible. But then the second part of the question is, what do we anticipate on the horizon? And how good are those tools going to be in one year from now, in five years from now? And this brings us back to the question we discussed earlier. How close are we to AGI uh, if AGI is possible? If AGI is on the horizon, then what should you teach students from that perspective? I think one partial answer to the question is we have to make peace with the fact that maybe our cognitive skills are not quite as important as we thought they were a year ago. Maybe they can be supplanted by machines and maybe that will be possible sooner than we thought. And then what is it that remains of us humans? How can we make sure that we still live our full humanity, even though we may no longer be useful cognitive workers? And I think one of my tasks as a professor, as an educator, is to make sure to develop that human perspective in both myself and my students as we are facing the progressive automation of cognitive tasks. Because that's the one part that will remain, even when we may no longer be useful on the job, we will still remain humans. And I hope we will all be better humans when we are freed from the need to work. That's again the critical condition if our material needs are taken care of. So last question, what's next for you? You're incredibly prolific. I've really enjoyed a lot of the papers and research that you've done. So I'm wondering what you're working on within that spectrum of economic and governance research related to AI. Right now, my main focus is on preparing for different scenarios of artificial general intelligence. I think we as a society are utterly unprepared and we need to think about it. We need to make the best preparations we can because the challenge that we are facing is formidable. And I think there are a whole range of aspects to the problem. Some of them that I hope I, as an economist, can make a small contribution to, is to think about what it will imply for labor markets, what it will imply for our social safety nets and how we can reform them and update them so that they will hopefully contribute to automatically making sure that some of the gains of AI will be distributed across society. How will we adapt our systems of taxation, which rely to a very large extent on labor right now? And if we want to be able to distribute uh, resources to workers who lose their jobs, we will need tax revenue for that. But then there are also many other questions that are maybe a little bit outside of the domain of economics that are so important for people to think about. How will we govern these systems? That's already what we referred to earlier. That goes back to the AI alignment problem. How will we make sure that our democratic institutions will survive artificial general intelligence, especially if there are massive disruptions in labor markets and maybe other aspects of society? So I think there are really so many important questions that we need people to think about. And... We don't know how much time we have left. Super, super interesting. 
So it's been fascinating to discuss how to think through the economic and specifically labor productivity implications of generative AI and AGI over the long term. What AI could potentially mean for the last 40 years of wage polarization and inequality, and why it's critical we rethink traditional forms of learning given the impact that AI could have on education. So I'd like to thank you for your time and thoughts today. I'm Jason Mitchell, Head of Responsible Investment Research at Bank Group, here today with Professor Anton Kornack at the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia and the Brookings Institution. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Anton, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much as well. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri podcast.